Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Deep Dish Radio. I'm Tim Powers. My guest today is one of rock and roll's legendary mystery men. After gaining the attention of the entire world for writing Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction, he followed with a string of gold records writing hits for Johnny Rivers, The Turtles, Herman's Hermits, Terry Black. He even had a song performed on the Flintstones. And there was a guy named Steve Barry. But P.F. Sloan disappeared from the public eye and was such a recluse that his very existence was questioned. Did he really exist? Was he a real person? Well, his autobiography, What's Exactly the Matter with Me, co-written by playwright S.E. Feinberg, finally sets the record straight. Not only is P.F. Sloan a real person, but he's really cool. Sloan rode the rock and roll roller coaster and survived hanging out with rock royalty, and he's here to tell the story only he can tell about the struggle, the glory, and the recovery from the glory days of rock and roll. P.F. Sloan joins me in just a moment. Hey, but first, if you really like what you hear today, tell a friend. Be sure to visit our website at deepdishradio.com. If you go to that page, there's an email link, and you can connect directly with me. Also follow us on Twitter at Deep Dish Radio, and be the first to learn who our next guest is going to be. This is an exciting time to join the Deep Dish family, and we'd love to hear from you and have you join us on our social media. Heck, there's even a Facebook fan page. Look for Deep Dish Radio on Facebook. I'll be reading your emails live in upcoming shows, so make sure to make them good. Spelling counts. And now, P.F. Sloan. It's Deep Dish Podcast. Subscribe today and tell a friend about Deep Dish Podcast with Tim Powers, with Tim Powers. Uh, one of the first things that really struck me was uh, you, Phil Sloan has been blessed by some of the icons of cool. You know, you, you tell the story about James Dean, about Elvis, about uh, John Lennon calling you and apologizing. You're blessed by Mick and Keith and Lester Mangs. Um, that's a pretty strong through line. Is, is there something um, within you that just attracts 
that kind of of person to you? Wow! Uh, <laughs> I know <laughs> it's it's heavy. You know, it's it's either it's either fate, uh, destiny, or uh, you know, just uh, just outright luck. Uh, but you know, when you're traveling through Oz. Uh, you know, you're bound, you're bound to meet, uh, you're bound to meet a lot of fellow travelers. Uh, the beautiful thing about all these people is that <clears throat> they all seem to be <clears throat> way less taken with themselves than people, average people, are taken with themselves. In other words, they they really felt like they were just ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. Which is, uh, it's it's difficult for those of us outside the fishbowl to really understand, you know, to think Elvis doesn't walk down the street every day thinking, hey, I'm Elvis. <laughs> you know? It's uh, it's pretty amazing. But you met him very early in his career. Are you, uh, would you, would you kind of walk us through that story a little bit? Sure. How, where, where would you like to uh, start from? Well, uh, let's let's talk about the the kid with the guitar walking into the music store. Yeah, you know, it, it, it had to have been, you know, a, a, a destiny kind of story uh, where a kid comes face-to-face with his uh, angst of not really wanting to be what the family wants him to be. Right. Uh, and Elvis is the hero in the story who uh, uh, is just too big to ignore. So I was... Young kid, twelve years old. Father was a pharmacist, and it was pretty much understood that I was, you know, uh, going to carry on the family tradition. Right. Um, he had bought me a guitar uh, from a, a local music store, and uh, I had gotten on the bus that uh, that week after I'd had it, I think, and went up to the music store to learn how to play the guitar and. The amazing thing about it was that the store was closed with two cops standing out front to guard the doors like uh, 100 teenage girls being held back by police. Um, I knew something was up, but I had no idea what. And since I was carrying a guitar, they let me into the shop. Uh, I don't know why, thinking I was a musician, I suppose. At 12. I have... <laughs> You're you're a twelve oh, yeah, year old member of the Jordanaires. <laughs> yeah, one of the midget Jordanaires, I guess. I guess. <laughs> so uh, uh, I go in there, and the store is empty. And uh, I'll tell you honestly, my first thought, I'm not proud of it, was was to rob the place blind. Sure. You know, stick as many records as I could. Uh, but I got over that thought and went over to the only place that was lit. Uh, since the store was dark, and that was the music uh, instrument section. Went in there, talked to uh, the old guy that was behind the counter. He must have been 25. And uh, as as he's talking to me, uh, Elvis comes walking downstairs and asks me if I want to learn how to play uh, this guitar. And uh, that was uh, the beginning of the uh, of the meeting with him, which uh, changed my life forever. Wow. Wow. Now, uh, you know, you you pick up your guitar and uh, you know, I've uh, everybody who's been bitten by the rock and roll bug from uh, from fans to uh to musicians to songwriters, you know, they always um remember that that 
uh, that artist or that record that that tipped them off. And uh, right. you had mentioned in in your book that Elvis didn't figure as big in your universe as as some other uh, uh, some other artists. You know, you knew obviously you could not avoid who Elvis was. You knew exactly who he was. Your mom and your sisters were fans, but uh, your sister was fan. But uh, you know, who was it that that tipped it off for you? That made the guitar t- the the thing that it was. You know, you you hit it exactly right. You know, I didn't I didn't think of it till this moment. Elvis was a girl thing. You know. Yeah. Uh, at least where it was where I was in Los Angeles. You know, it might have been different in the South. Uh, and in the movies, they portray you know eighteen, nineteen year old guys wearing you know black leather jackets and you know greasy hair. So you know, but for a twelve year old, it was Elvis was about women. Um, you know, I, I don't really recall. Elvis had something to do with it, sure. The guitar, I mean, I, I could, I can't really think offhand who it was, but he hollered I me, and I was very, I was 12 years old, pretty much listening to my sister's music collection from downstairs. So I'd been listening to, I don't know, The Platters, uh, Little Richard, Buddy Holly. Right. Um, she, she was pretty eclectic, but Elvis was uh, the, you know, the, the main guy. Was it, uh, was it, uh, you know, when when you get the guitar, you look around and you and you you're 12 years old and you start seeing the female adulation for Elvis, you know, was that was that part of the appeal for you or was it really all about the music? At that point, uh, to be really honest, yeah, there was there was the idea of you know I was a, a really uh, overweight 12 year old pudgy kid and. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think I wanted uh, female attention, um, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't until later that the music kicked in. You know, I think it might have been the Everly Brothers. Now that I think of it, I could see that. Wow. You know, Everly Brothers weren't teenage idol per se. You know, they seemed to be about the songs and the music, but their guitars were you know, sensational. Those Gibson J two hundreds. They're amazing. Yeah. Um, that's, it's just an amazing story, the, the, the Elvis thing and to, you know, realize that Elvis wasn't the, the Elvis that, uh, that those of us who came along later saw, you know, he was huge, no question. But at that time, um, you know, if you could, if you were clever enough, you could get in there and he'd sit down and go, oh, you want to learn how to play that? That's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I think what you're trying to say is uh, he really was down to earth. Yeah, in every way, and yet, you know, the guy looked like looked like he had come from you know uh, Mount Olympus. You know, <laughs> when you're 12, I would I would imagine it, it really seemed like he had. Yeah, I mean, uh, just an aura about him, energy, uh, love that I hadn't really experienced. That was the, that was the key thing. You know, you can run into, uh, you know, you can run into your favorite uh, personalities. You don't necessarily walk away with the feeling of being loved. Uh, that's the feeling that I I got, and I treasured that uh, more than anything. I felt loved, and that was something that I I believe was missing in my life. You know that that brings up the the next interesting point. Um, one of the through lines, and and this is looking at it, you know, fifty years later. But one of the through lines that I saw through the book was Phil Sloan and bullies. 
Um, and, and here's what I mean by that. There's an interesting story at the beginning of the book where you stand up to an abusive mom and you, you know, you, you threaten her with something very, very severe. Then a few years later, uh, you stand up to Jerry Lasker, who was just as, <laughs> was a bully with, uh, and, and, uh, he threatens you with something just as, just as severe. And, um, there was really a sense of empowerment when you stood up to your mom. Are you okay to, uh, walking through that story a little bit? Um, I'll be honest with you, Tim. I haven't really ever talked about it except, you know, going through it in the book. Um, yeah, but sure, I'm, I'm open to it. Sure. Um, but you see where I'm going with the, um, with the dichotomy be- between the two, uh, or the similarity really between the two where there's, um, you threaten to maim yourself to, to your mom and then Lasker thre- <laughs> basically threatens you and uh, to maim yourself. Uh, yeah, I can dig it. Uh, you know, I'm really looking at it for the first time with you right now. At it, but you know what it seemed to be is, is when you have, I suppose when you have an experience like that with a parent, which, you know, with many people would be, you know, last a whole lifetime, you know, in considering yourself a victim. Um, I was able to get past that, but I don't think the thing I was able to get past was uh, looking for uh, looking for uh, either a father figure or a mother figure. Yeah. You know, someone, someone, someone to give you love and guidance. Uh, you know, I was able to get past the violence of it, but, you know, um, I, I still think I was vulnerable in terms of believing uh, people in the business as being, uh, you know, uh, parental figures. Yeah, I, we noticed that, too, uh, throughout the book. You, you are associated with very strong personalities, and you attach yourself to them. Um, and like you, you called one of your partners like, a, like an older brother, and you, and you looked for, for father figures throughout. Um, and notice that that, that kind of gives birth to the, the P.F. Sloan identity that a lot of times you talk about in the third person. Uh, and I, I thought that was fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about um, the, the formation of P.F. Sloan as an entity? Well, um, I can try. I know this, uh, this is a little heavy for us for a Saturday morning. <laughs> uh, I can try because, uh, you know, you're, you're really the only person that has ever really brought this up. Uh, so I haven't really looked at it. Um, the, 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 the observer, okay, you know, just being a, a, you know, just talking as an observer, you know, with with little vested interest, right? Uh, except knowing somewhat of the story, I would say that that the P.F. Sloan personality and entity that came about uh, had to have been, could have been, uh, you know, a fearless person uh, who seemed to be strong, aware, and unattached to any of the personalities uh, or the business or the money aspect of it. Just a a completely uh, different person than than the young Phil Sloan, uh, who was looking, you know, to uh, try and find a way to uh, survive in the world, you know, as best he could. It seemed that P.F. Sloan really didn't care about that. 
uh, to him, it, it was about uh, the music and making a statement, and it didn't really matter uh, who thought of it or what. So I wanted to become P.F. Sloan, um, you know, full-time. Um, but uh, they, the forces that were there realized that, that this guy was, this personality was a power to reckon with, and they really, it, it frightened them and scared them. And, uh, you know, uh, I suppose their only avenue was, was to destroy it after they uh, had sort of milked it, you know, to the best of their ability. Yeah, they clamped down uh, pretty hard. Yeah, that's about as close as I can come to it. I mean, I, I can't, I can't really say that, uh, you know, that uh, the writing entity of P.F. Sloan was was completely different than Phil Sloan. I mean, much more, uh, uh, much more enlightened, much more advanced, uh, much more, uh, pretty much what I was looking for, you know, in in reading poetry and things like that. It seemed to be uh, have a connection to uh, the higher realms of of music. Sure, as an artist, you know you uh, you were in such a, a unique situation. At sixteen, you're writing you're writing pop hit records, right? And then yeah. and then uh, one night you're laying in bed and and uh, Eva Destruction and a handful of other songs come in and you know there was clearly an artist. Um, and a and a culturally aware entity within you trying to get out but you it seemed like you were kind of trapped in this in this box where you you know I, I would imagine the income was was pretty tempting to continue to write pop songs but the um uh, the artist in you was dying to get out and and based on what i saw in the book that's kind of where pf sloan came from yeah, you know, Tim, you really put it well. I'll buy that. <laughs> it's high praise, good sir. Uh, thank, thank you very much. You know, uh, I, I may I may edit this out, but I want to tell you my PF Sloan story. Uh, sure. We, you and I shook hands at uh, a signing for the L.A. Uh, Nuggets box set that Andrew Sandoval put and Rhino put on at. Um, at Amoeba Records. Right. And you performed Halloween Mary live, which was a, a treat. I got to tell you, it was amazing. And um, I, went through the, I went through the line, and uh, I think you were at the end of the table. You were at the very end of the table. And okay. uh, you, you, you signed the book, and I was wearing a Batman shirt, and we were just, just riffing back and forth. I, I think maybe you were sitting next to Keith Allison. And uh, and just joking, you're like, hey, can I sign your Batman shirt? And I'm like, hell yeah! <laughs> so sitting in my studio right now is a Batman T-shirt signed by uh, by P.F. Sloan. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. cool. Yeah. You know the the second half of the book gets really uh, gets really intense because that's when you uh, you know the 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 money stops. You're you're. Um, you get involved with some drugs. You move to New York. Things things really happen. And um, as I was finishing the book, like the last couple of pages, it really hit me what a survivor you are. Uh, because you listed uh, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Tim Buckley, um, Fred Neal, uh, Lenny Bruce, folks who self-destructed under the pressure of what they were expected to do. And, uh, you know, you just barely dodged that bullet. And the thing that you said that really pulled you through was that you learned how to love and forgive, right? 
And yes. it struck me as I read that that was the idealism of the of the of the sixties generation. You know that um, you know there was it was the the summer of love and it was all about love and the Beatles were preaching love. And as you dig into the business and the industry that sold us that love, you start to realize that those people were, were, uh, some of them were full of shit (laughs) and uh, some of them weren't, but, um, you know, the, the seventies and eighties and even the early nineties were kind of, kind of hard for you. How did you get to that point? How did you get to the point where you, where you learn to, uh, learn to love and forgive? You know, I might not have, uh, simply because because the circumstances were were set up that that uh, that there wasn't a lot of love around in my life. Yeah. But it just so happened that I I was blessed to come into contact with uh, a spiritual guru from India, and uh, that was the, the beginning of of my personal journey of healing from within and uh, realizing the power of of love and forgiveness <clears throat> which took which took a number of years and a number of trips uh uh to India and spending time there with him and uh eventually it took hold and uh, the healing uh the healing process uh, uh came to fruition yeah the your your guru from India is yet another uh, powerful, spiritual, amazing, larger-than-life icon that came to you in a uh, in an unusual way. Yes, very. Can, can you tell me that? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, I I can be you know average, normal, uh, a victim, uh, hurt, sad. Why is this happening to me? And what did I do? And Everyone was around me was saying, you know, it's all your fault. You did something to piss people off. And um, one night uh, living with my parents, because I, I really couldn't afford uh, to live on my own. Right. Uh, this spiritual guru came into my dream by the name of Sai Baba and uh, told me that he would heal me. And uh, it took me about a year to find out who this Sai Baba was. Mm-hmm. But it happened that a uh, a friend that I went to junior high school with uh, had actually been to India with his wife. He had a heart problem that couldn't be healed. He, he was uh, had a bad heart and was supposed to die, and he had heard about Sai Baba, and he went to go see him, and apparently Baba healed him. And uh, I ran into him uh, serendipitously, and he, he I told him about this dream, and he said, oh, that's Sai Baba from India. And and so before I knew it, uh, the money had come in somehow, and I was able to go to India. And um, he recognized me immediately, uh, though, you know, I'd never been there before, but he knew who I was uh, and uh, began the healing process. And, and mind you, there was, you know, 25, 30,000 people there at a time, right. you know. So it, it was amazing that, that he knew who I was, you know, and immediately told me, you know, how, you know, he'd been waiting for me and how sick I was and that, you know, he told these people that were sitting next to me, you know, he, he's come from Los Angeles and he's very ill. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was a mind blower that he knew who I was and uh, cared about me. So maybe I'd done something good in another life. So, Or even this life, Bill. I mean, you, you don't discount the fact that, you know the the reason the reason there are our gold records is because people listen and you get you get guys like me who are like man he gets it um 
because you were you were writing songs at 16 uh, that I discovered at 16 20 years later and I'm like this guy gets it this is fantastic um and so through okay. through Sai Baba you know the 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 real message of of love and understanding kind of came through is that right yes yeah the the the, the i had to forgive myself for whatever i think i had done and i had to forgive all of those as really being a part of myself since since human beings are all one right. we're not we're not dis- that we're all interconnected. So I had to heal everything and know that it was exactly the way it was supposed to be. It was exactly the way it was supposed to be. Uh, there was things that I learned, you know, through uh, the exile from music for 30, 40 years that uh, I needed to learn from being here on Earth. So, you know, I began to be able to see it through the eyes of love and, and just... Uh, it may not be the way my personality would want it to be, but uh, it's, it was exactly right for my spirit. So uh, realizing that uh, made, made it all good. Yeah, it's, it, that's what, what, I don't want to say it was missing from the book, but one could expect some bitterness mixed in with these incredible stories that you tell about uh, being, P.F. Sloan being clamped down. And 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 controlled and, for lack of a better term, really abused, which caused that thirty-year exile. And you know, rather than bitterness, I, I as the reader, really started to feel for you, um, and and thought, uh, wow, this is really amazing, um, and could relate. the The story that you tell about hearing Jimmy Webb's song about you uh, resonated. <laughs> resonated because I've actually been to that hot dog stand right next to the Vista Theater. I'm like, I know exactly where that is. I probably sat on that same stool. And uh yeah. and and what a uh, what a snowball that started for you, you know, when 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 you heard that. Yeah, that uh that took a lot of years to process. I bet what that was about. Um and, uh, you know, in all fairness, it was difficult for Jimmy as well. Uh, every time I run into Jimmy, he's always apologizing to me uh, for writing that song. Well. You know, he's saying, I should have asked permission. You know, I didn't do that. I don't, you know. Uh, it, it just so happens that if, if it, if it, even if it was anybody else's name, it just happens to be a fantastic song, isn't it? Yes, it it's really hauntingly, is. It never gets old. I don't know why that is. And it's he, been, he captured something haunting in that in that song. It that was uh, yeah. Timeless. It really is, and like like a lot of the songs that you've written, there aren't bad covers. <laughs> you know, everyone who's done it has done a a really interesting and and great job on it. And uh, the same could be said for a lot of things that that you wrote as well. Um, I mean, I discovered P.F. Sloan through the Turtles, and I was uh, I was a senior in high school in 1986 just to give you an idea of what it was and just uh, fell in love with vinyl uh, a few years earlier and just started digging through everything that came out between maybe right before Beatlemania to about 1971 and just grabbed everything I could get my hands on and remember getting that Turtles album and looking at the liner notes and going, who is this guy? And it just kind of brought me down the rabbit hole and, uh, and really discovered some amazing things. Uh, through trying to find out more about you in this time when uh, when you were in exile. So we were out there 
Phil. Don't worry. We were we were out there. Um, <laughs> it's kind of cool. Um, yeah. During the uh, during the exile, one of the things that uh, that I found in the book, and another another bully you stood up to, is you kind of brought down Eugene Landy a little bit. Uh, yeah, I was I was I was really I was really blessed to play a character uh, in that play, to play a part in that play. Uh, you know, it was at a time when when I was still. Uh, in the process of healing, okay, yeah, and uh, and uh, I had I had been friends with Brian Wilson, and you know, because I'd worked with Jan and Dean in the studio for years, mm-hmm. and you know, Brian and and Jan were very close, and so you know, I'd, I run it, I'd run into Brian and, and the Beach Boys, you know, almost every day at the recording studios, and uh, you know, I loved him, and as much as I loved Jan and Dean, and uh, you know, I read about the problems that Brian was going through. And I, you know, I used to pray for him, you know, and ask God, you know, isn't there something, you know, isn't there something, you know, that, that you can do to, you know, get him free of this madness. But, you know, it, it it went on and on and on and on. I didn't realize it was nine years. Right. Right. I mean, and, and wow. I mean, the, the way that he was, the way that he was sucking him dry was incredible. So uh, I guess the the part that uh, that the universe had me set up to play was I get a call from a, a Tim White at Billboard magazine, and this is still at the time where where uh, you know nobody's really sure who P.F. Sloan is. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean the fact that Eugene Landy could could stand up at a press conference and say, you know, when they asked him, you know, how is it that you're where, how do you have the cojones, you know, to, you know, write songs with Brian Wilson? And he said, oh, well, he said, my, you don't know my, my nom de plume. Uh, and they said, what's that? And he says, oh, he says, you know, I go by the name of P.F. Sloan. So <laughs> everybody just accepted that. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's like huge amnesia or whatever. But oh, they said, oh, oh, you're P.F. Sloan. Okay, great. So uh, there was one guy who, like, Six months after he made that statement, one guy uh, at Billboard magazine, Tim White, an assistant editor there, uh, he says, you know, I've got a P.F. Sloan album at home. It doesn't look anything like that guy. (laughs) (laughs) And he must have been one of the only people in the world that had it because nobody, nobody questioned it. Um, And uh, he tracked me down and called me up on the phone one, one day and asked me if I would be willing, you know, to uh, go to court, you know, and say that uh, that this man's a liar and that he's, you know, using my name uh, wrongly. And uh, I told him, yes, I'd be, I'd be very happy to. So under the threat of that, uh, Eugene Landy, within a week of, of the article, I'd written a letter to Billboard magazine stating that he was a, a charlatan, a uh, a Rasputin and a liar. Yeah. Uh, within a week to two weeks, he had uh, been kicked out of the psych, uh, the uh, whatever medical part of the uh, the AMA or something. But the Locked psychology, license, yeah. he, he was he was stripped of it, and uh, within two three weeks, he was gone. And um, so that was that was really a, a wonderful. A wonderful turn of events. Quite a quite a victory uh, for you. 
Yeah, yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. It's great. Have you seen uh, Love and Mercy? Have you seen the movie yet? No, I haven't. I haven't either. Have you? No, I, I, I intend to see it, but uh, um, haven't haven't yet. But uh, apparently the... Uh, uh, you know, some folks aren't happy with how they're they're portrayed. Like Van Dyke Parks isn't happy with how he's portrayed in the movie, but um, I think Lanny's right. pretty accurate. And in fact, I don't even know if there's a, a P.F. Sloan in the movie or if they even get into that. But now, yeah, Tim, I, I'll tell you honestly, uh, I I don't know how this sounds, and I don't know if you want to put this on the air. Okay, but there is a very strong effort to expunge. Uh, P.F. Sloan. Tell me more about there, that. There's, yeah, there, there is that happening. Um, but, no, it, there's no mention of it. And, and the portrayal of the portrayal of Landy is, is not, exactly, not exactly the way it, it happened, but it's Hollywood. Of you course, know? yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the the effort to expunge. Are they are they trying to remove the PF Sloan from from history, which seems yeah. that it would be difficult to do because your on liner notes and thank heavens you got around to writing this book. So those of us who know and have have shook hands with you, we know we know what's going on. Yes, and and I can't even begin to fathom why that is, but when when I was in the desert for 30, 40 years, it was basically a field day for the uh, for the for the mice. I mean, basically, they, everybody was standing up and saying, "I wrote these songs. I did all this work. I did the producing. I did all that." Johnny Rivers, bless his heart, was saying, "You know, I wrote the uh, you know the riffs on Secret Agent." Everyone was taking credit right. uh, for all of that. Uh, the publishing companies, obviously, who weren't paying me anymore, were very happy with the idea that they didn't have to pay this guy. Right. Um, and and so, you know, there was this idea, you know, to just expunge him, you know, and that became like I, I don't I don't know how to express it or how to say it. Uh, it seems like the universe didn't want that, and that's the reason why uh, the book came out and and this, uh, you know, the the touring and and the, and a new album. Um, but that's, you know, that's one of the darker parts of the music business. Uh, everybody stands up and takes credit for something they didn't do these days. But, uh, so I've been protected from that regard and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And, and still standing and, and still rocking. Uh, the new album came to you in a really interesting way as well. When you were, when you were in the desert and this, uh, you know, the the album just kind of appears. I don't, I don't want to sell the creative process short, but it, what what I what I read, and maybe I misinterpreted, but it it, it kind of came to you during a period where you weren't really conscious conscious of its creation. Is that is that accurate? Wow. Uh... You know, I this but this much I can say, just as you know, just as a person experiencing, you know, uh, that after after the work was done, yeah, and it it was a, an intense ten twelve year project, which I anyone in their right mind uh, really wouldn't want to get involved in that because everybody knew that you know uh, that were artists are, are susceptible to 
getting involved in a project that uh, is, you know, can be never ending. Right. You know, uh, and and you really have to be in your guard against that because, you know, it's 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 so it can be so egotistically hidden from you, you know, but you're being uh, you're being uh, obsessed. Uh, and it's a fine line between compulsion and obsession. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, uh, and and you're so anyway, at the end of this project, which was an impossible thing to do. Uh, I, I don't remember any of it. You know, no, I, I took notes uh, on a diary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, of, of the work that I was doing, and I read it now, and it, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. It's impossible. You know, I mean, I was, I was writing music, and I don't write music, and I was. Uh, doing things that uh, I had no way of knowing what it is I was doing. So uh, it, uh, I'm very happy with the finish. I'm very happy with the with the, with the work, though. Um, and I think if I can remember from my heart that I wanted to, I wanted to do music from my heart. For, you know, without you know, with paying homage to the filters of pop. Right. You know. But but being able to not have someone tell me this has to be done in in, in six weeks or uh, or tell me what it is I can and cannot do lyrically or musically, and I just thought for myself I do it I do that just to see if God had given me talent in that regard. So um, I'm very happy with it. But as I said, I, I I'm going on a bit, but I, I really don't consciously remember doing the work. So after which is. After 50 years, the, the creative universe finally let you be who you wanted, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, that's so beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, tell me about the, the new project uh, with, and, and the connection with Beethoven. Well, it came about serendipitously. I, I really had been dried up uh, to music. Uh, I mean, I listened avidly to music, but... I didn't find anything that was inspiring to me anymore. When, when, uh, uh, when you say you were dried up to music and you were listening, uh, and I don't mean to interrupt, but w this is kind of, in your own words, when you were on the desert, um, you know, you, what you said was that you fortunately kind of missed out on disco, but were you, were you listening when you were, uh, when you, were you listening to music? Were you playing the radio when you were, uh, when you were adrift? You know, I don't recall. Okay. Um, you know, there, there, there might have been, you know, there, there were definitely people that would tell me about things, but um, 
I really just felt completely burned out from music. Sure. Um, music, music was just done for me. And that was a sad thing for me because, you know, growing up as a teenager, I really had it in my mind and heart that I'd always be listening and loving music. Um, just couldn't conceive of the idea of not, not listening or loving music. Uh-huh. Um, so that, that completely disappeared for me. And uh, it wasn't until someone took me to a Beethoven concert that uh, all of a sudden uh, that thorny cactus of a heart uh, just broke and uh, a new heart emerged that was just saying, oh, that's, that's what all this rock and roll was about. That's what all these harmonies are about. That's what the search for the heart and soul of God and music is about. He's captured it. He's got the entire harmony of all of music right, right within his heart. And I thought, wow, I said, if I'm a musician, you know, shouldn't there be some of that in me as well? You know? Right. So I and just you, wanted to explore that. And you started to find some connections uh, between what you experienced contemporarily and what Beethoven went through. Like the, the, the thing that struck me most, and this may not have resonated as strongly with you because I'm looking from the outside, but uh, Beethoven's pressure to write what was at the time popular music uh, at the same time wanting to write what burned within his soul, which was kind of the difference between Phil and, and P.F. Sloan writing at Dunhill. That is very, very accurate. That's, that's one of the things that, that, that led me to uh, uh, keep investigating uh, Beethoven. Uh, one of the things that, that he, he mentioned was that he was always considered to be a Mozart wannabe. He was never, he wrote in his diaries that he will never be accepted as an artist on his own. Uh, there can only be one, and that was Mozart. And he's just a, uh, a, a wannabe Mozart. The other was that I found out that he, he, his favorite instrument was the guitar and that he had written 400 folk songs. That's interesting. I said, what? This, this guy wrote folk songs? Yeah, he wrote folk songs, and he always carried a guitar with him. Um, and, and so all these coincidences, similarities, you know, began to, like, really mount up. And I thought, you know, this guy's calling me, you know. And, you know, I, I had to take it with a grain of salt because, you know. But, you know, the fact is, 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 is if you take Beethoven as a, just, a, just another guy, and not as a god, you know. Yeah. There, you begin to, you begin to see his happinesses, his joys, his sadnesses are very similar to all of ours. So I sort of kicked him off the pedestal, which he wanted, and just said, "Hey, you know, uh, see who I am. See, see, I'm just a musician like you." And so I began to learn to play the piano by listening to Glenn Gould for about six, seven years. Right. And uh, and one night, uh, I'll tell you honestly, Tim, <clears throat> believe it or not, um, I'm just telling you the experience that I had, yeah. whether you believe, can believe it or not, it doesn't matter. But uh, one night he came to me. And, Beethoven. Uh, Beethoven came to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know this is going to sound crazy. Believe me, I know this. But uh, imagine I've been working heart, heart and soul day and night 
for years, you know, looking at his life and his music. And the first words he says to me are, is, uh, in a huge, thick German accent, is, uh, you don't know how to write music, but shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Don't you think I know that? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he, he uh, you know, whether that's real or not, I can't tell you. All I know is that it didn't change my love and feeling for him and his music. Uh, it just redoubled my efforts, which I perhaps needed to uh, finish the album. Because one of the lines in, in, in the song, My Beethoven, which was the only song I was working on for all these years, was praying to God, either kill me or finish the song. <laughs> <You know? laughs> just, just one of the two. I don't care. I mean, how, how long does it take to write a song? I'm just, it's, in, it's, it's just astounding. So, uh, in in the end, that song led to a cycle of of, of seven, eight other songs that that came about fairly quickly, and uh, so I recorded it, <clears throat> and then found a label for it, and uh, and uh, it, it I'm very pleased with it. I think it's the, the happiest thing I've ever done. But I realize it's like you know Dion saying, you know, this new album's the best album I ever made. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. It may be, but let's face it, you know, nothing's going to take the place of Ruby, baby. <laughs> well, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for the for the artist's heart. And if your heart and soul is in this, and I'll be honest, I haven't heard the new album, um, but uh, your your emotion and your heart and soul is enough to, to have me get it as soon as I as soon as we uh, we end this. Um it's, I mean, it's a fascinating concept, and the and as you talk about it toward the end, toward the end of the book, and as I've heard you talk about it in other places, um, it's it's really really uh, fascinating. Will there be live performances? I would love to, but you know, here's the the really peculiar thing, Tim. Um, while I was learning how to play piano and playing piano eight to ten hours a day. For 12 years, 14 years, yeah. uh, I don't, I don't remember any of any of the chords for the songs. <clears throat> I mean, I've tried. Sure. I, I made a, I made a, a special, I made up a special uh, uh, CD of just the piano parts, mm -hmm. so I could learn them, but. Um, I don't know. We'll have to see. It it would be amazing to do. I just don't know if I'm capable of it, but wow. we'll see. Wow, that's. Uh, I mean, the opportunity to to see uh, something so close to your heart uh, come alive in in front of in front of you. And speaking as a as a fan and an audience member would would be really powerful. Um, at the same time, we're blessed to live in a time when. Uh, when the record is there, you know? Well, Tim, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this because it, it just came through to me. You know, the, the main goal of this wasn't about me. It was about, it was about taking Beethoven back from the elite. Wow. It cool. wasn't about, well, it was about the fact that, that Louis 
who he liked to be called Louis because that's what the French called him. Right. And they were the only ones that were buying his music, you know, at the time. Uh, so he was really earning whatever money he could get, living hand to mouth, from the French, and they called him Louis, and he just embraced that. The thing is, is that Louis liked to play in bars, you know? Yeah. I mean, every, every night he would go and play piano at the bar, and they would call out songs for him to play. So he was a bar piano player, you know? Yes, he played at home, you know, and yes, he wrote things, but basically his heart and soul was, you know, was playing for people in a bar. Today, if you want to go see a Beethoven concert, it's going to cost you $180. And, he's, and, and, and people of, all, you know, of, of the younger generations who, like myself, I identify with them because when I was younger, Beethoven was not presented to me in a positive way. He was presented, he was forced down my throat with Shakespeare. Yeah. And I developed a distaste for it because I didn't like it being shoved on me. So the fact is, is that he belonged to the elite now, and we're missing out on the roots of rock and roll and the roots of jazz and blues and, and the real heart and soul of classical music, as far as I'm concerned. Because I don't like to listen to classical, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know what it means, and it, it, some of it is just, most of it is just like filler music to me, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Maybe I'm not sophisticated enough. But, you know, uh, it doesn't appeal to me. I mean, you turn on one of these local, you know, college stations and listen to, you know, classical music, you know, it, it's, it's okay. It's like eating too much turkey, you know, it puts you to sleep. <laughs> you know, maybe that's, maybe that's all of it. But I can't get into the guy's head who's written it. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know what he's thinking about. I don't know what he's talking about, you know. But with Beethoven, I can feel every joy pain and thought that's going through his mind and he writes in his diary the 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 truth of music he said is being inside the composer's mind and heart and he allows us that entrance which is amazing you know so you can feel when he hesitates for a moment on a chord to go to the next one yeah you could you could sense that he's not sure where he wants to go and then when he hits that chord, it's like a triumphant change that he's accepted that it sounds good to him. So it's like, uh, it's really, it's like being in John Malkovich. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like being in John Malkovich's head and heart. And, uh, you know, that's just one of the, uh, the beauties of, of, uh, of Louis. That's fantastic. It's really, um, the the way that you talk about Beethoven is the way a lot of your contemporaries and everybody after talks about uh, the folks that we talked about at the beginning of the uh, of the interview, James Dean and Elvis and John Lennon and Mick and Keith, you know, uh, right? And it seemed like growing up where you were and having those experiences at such a young age, you were prepared to take an icon and remove him from his pedestal and humanize him so that he could say to you, Pierre Sloan, you don't know how to write music for shit. You know, it, it, it humanizes <laughs> yeah. him. That's fantastic. Um, you know, one of the other things that, um, you know, the world has, has changed a lot since, uh, since 60, since 64, um, how has the how have the distribution channels changed for this new uh, 
the, the, the new album. You know, does that, is that something that, that rings in your universe, or is that something for other people to deal with? Uh, it does. It does touch up upon my universe, but uh, the there's very little that one can do. I mean, uh, I was just very fortunate to be able to get the record out, which I hadn't ever really ex- expected. Because, to be honest with you, my circle of friends really thought that what I was doing was crazy and shit. And, you know, they were basically distancing themselves from me. And it's not that I blame them. It's because from their point of view, I was caught up in a compulsion and they had no idea what it was going to sound like in the end. And it's impossible that it came out so good. It really shouldn't. It's impossible. Yeah. Because all these, all these compulsion projects turn out to be just egoistical projects. But it, there's very, very, very little uh, of that in, in the, uh, the project itself. Uh, it's just basically the heart, and, uh, just heart of, the heart of music for me. Um, so the, the distribution of it, it, it's on Amazon. It's, it's on foothillrecords.com. Um, it's, it's a small boutique label, but it's been selling constantly, uh, for the last, for the last year. Right. Well, it, and I mean, it's out there, which really is. You know, the, the, the new digital distribution has, has almost kind of leveled the playing field. You know what I mean? Almost. Almost, almost yes. But then again, I, I remember the goal, the goal of this album is really to get you to listen to Beethoven. Which, from, from creator to audience, Phil, that's what it's done. I, I am looking forward to diving in. Um, and I'm a, a veteran of classical music radio. So, you know, I worked in, in classical radio for a while and played a lot of Beethoven. And, um, you know, you're right. On a steady diet, you tend to pot it down and, and read a book. You know, when, right. when, when, you're, when you're in the booth for four hours a day, you, you pot it down and, and read a book or whatever. Um, but to, to go in and really find, when you say it's the roots of rock and roll, and one of the earliest rock and roll songs and, and one of my favorites uh, mentions Beethoven by name. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of says, "We're here now. Back off." Um, to to see that as as actual genuine, what the hipsters call roots music, is is really fascinating, and it's a it's a whole different perspective, and I love it. It is, and and that's that's the only contact that I ever had with Beethoven was "Roll Over." Right, that was it. But the fact that 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 uh, 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 the fact that Chuck Berry uh, was bringing that up to us as at fourteen. Um, it still didn't do the trick, uh, you know, because through high school, those that were listening to the Beatles and the Stones and Elvis, uh, the other, the, the nerds were not listening to that. They were listening to classical, you know, and yeah. they were looking at, they were looking at the, at the Beatles as imitation, you know, uh, classical musicians, you know. But we didn't really know where it was coming from. And if I remember correctly, the first review that, that actually brought the Beatles into major prominence was uh, one of the British newspapers that compared them to Beethoven. Oh, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, the, the, you know, the, the big wigs, uh, you know, the, the, the classical wigs were saying, what, how can they, they say that? So they started listening to the Beatles and they found that there was something in their music that was creatively genius. 
So it was Beethoven again bringing the Beatles into the into the world. Yep, there there are tons of scholarly tomes written, uh, you know, by uh, musicians and and critics of music and people who are into the theory of music about, uh, you know, what John Paul and George were really doing uh, musically. And frankly, it's over my head. So I, right. you know, I stopped reading a lot of that because it seemed uh, it seemed pompous. And if you if you dig it you know drop the needle on the vinyl and just enjoy it and shut up um really yeah a, you got it man a friend of mine who uh who works in the works in the industry says that there's there's a magic moment in just about every piece of music in every record you know you take the the dopiest fabian cut and there's something right. in there where it just where it just gets you yeah for example how he says turn my loose yeah yeah. He doesn't say the word me. He says turn me loose. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, there there's I agree. There there is something there is something fantastic in in every record whether it's a hit or or not. And one other quick thing. Yeah, man. Uh be between the war between Beethoven and Mozart. And I don't know if you're aware that it's still going. Oh yeah. It's an ongoing war because they took Beethoven's uh, statue uh, out of the because the Mozart people complained. Uh, they had a statue of Beethoven in front of the L.A. Philharmonic Hall. I didn't know that. And so they they removed his statue. They put it in uh, they put it in in Lafayette Park next to uh, next to the, the World War One general. I forget his name. So there's Beethoven standing next to a World War One general. Uh, the reason that is that the Mozart people objected to having Beethoven's uh, statue in front of the music hall. And here, here's the way I look at it, because I look at it very objectively, I hope. You know, Be Mozart was writing was what they call stream of consciousness, right? Right. Beethoven agonized, <laughs> was agonizing over every chord. If you look at his, his, his chord sheets, his... You'd see he started out with a B-flat and then erased it and thought a B-flat minor. No, I'll make it a C. No, it'd sound better if it was a D-flat. He agonized over every single thing. And I think that's the way most of us are. I don't think we're privileged to that divine grace of just constant, endless flow, you know, from heaven straight to the, you know, straight to the paper. And yet I found that Beethoven, like Mozart, was given, as, as Beethoven described, he said, I was given the entire symphony in one flash of light, okay? Huh. He said, inside the flash of light was the entire symphony. He said, but it, it would take me 10 years to decipher the light, but I always remain true to the actual light. So in a flash of light, all the music was given. It wasn't created as we think it's created. In other words, it's, he's saying that it's coming to him as a flash of light. And what he does is agonize, sort of like a Lego thing, to get the right building blocks according to the light that he, he, he experienced. You know, saying, oh, no, it can't be that chord because it doesn't feel right with what the light had given me. So he's... he's He's doing an amazing job of of transferring light into music. 
as a and and it comes from comes from the heart and soul more than it comes from the theory and the charts. Is that, is that exactly. what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As as a lot of other, yeah, as as lesser lesser kind of still wonderful. I mean, if you look at if you look at all the people that Beethoven influenced, you know, uh, and uh, you know that was another amazing thing to learn was that you could take ten chords of Beethoven of any piece. And just as he did with Haydn, you know, with, you know, he would listen to, to, to Haydn and, and say, oh, my God, that's an incomplete symphony just in those 10 bars. I'm going to take those 10 bars and turn it into a symphony. So it was sort of like Beethoven is like this fertile field. You know, you take any 10 bars of him and, you know, they're open to, you know, creating new works of art from it. And here you are, still still doing that. Um, yes, shows you the energy is still there. Are there uh, on the new album? Are there pieces based off of you know Beethoven chord changes, for lack of a better term, or are they all coming from a brand new space? It's a wonderful question. Um, first off, the album is taken from his diaries and his letters, so a lot of the words are his own. All of the feelings are his own, but they seem to match up with my own feelings on a, on a lot of levels. Um, the music is inspired by him, but put through the filter of a pop songwriter, but it's coming from the heart rather than the filter of trying to create a, a successful song. If that makes any sense. Uh, of course it does. Of course it does. And that's, um, you know, that's going to make that album uh, interesting to listen to because it's it's such a, you know, the, the craft and the, um, the, the workmanlike effort that went into, um, you know, Beethoven pieces or, forgive me for, for comparing if it's presumptuous, the, the, early P.F. Sloan compositions um, has kind of been replaced by a more natural um, organic kind of thing and the the skill just kind of is second nature. Am I making sense? Um, I'm not really sure. That uh, you've got the, the, the building pieces, the skill. You, are, you know how to swing a golf club already? You know, you've been swinging right. a golf club for enough that that when you approach a challenging course, the the nuts and bolts kind of come to you automatically. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, there were two things in 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 my Beethoven. Um, one is is I I may have been foolish enough to actually take the Ninth Symphony and write lyric to it and uh, redo. Uh, redo it in such a way because basically the ninth symphony was basically written in a bar you know it's a bar song yeah. and wow. you know uh beethoven had heard that melody 20 years previously and again studying beethoven you realize the insight into a musician any musician is that he simply says you never lose a melody whether you, it takes 25 years, 30 years, but you never forget anything you've ever written. So he wrote 
he wrote, you know, maybe a half a page of music, you know, uh, from the bar song and left it for 20 years. And he, he said, you never forget. And that, that is amazing. You know, as musicians, uh, there isn't anything that we've ever written or ever heard that we'll ever forget and, and not want to use. So I may have been foolish to do that, but it's his, it's his feelings in the Ninth Symphony uh, in, in, in called Joy to the Ninth. And the only other time I used a Beethoven actual line, and I struggled with it. There are two things. I struggled with it for 10 years. I know that sounds impossible. It does sound impossible because I don't remember any of it now. But I've got proof that I did it. But I used string lines on Fur Elise. That's it. Right. Uh, And I interwove that uh, in a song just as, as... as just throwing it about and, and, um, and basically, uh, uh, you know, playing, playing the ninth symphony, uh, was, was basically it. And, and I struggled to do the da 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 da. Of course. course. I struggled in my Beethoven. And, and then I, I finally, after all the years I said, yes, I, I, I can own that, you know, it's his, and and I can put that in there. Well, and and Louis can't insult your songwriting if you're using him as a foundation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, honestly, Tim, I I really do think he was standing behind me on a lot of this. I don't think he's attached to it, obviously, and I don't think he's owning it. But I think he was he was helping me uh, through that process, and I really f- look at him. Uh, as just a wonderful, wonderful human being. I mean, what a sense of humor he had. Nobody knows. Uh, all the stuff that's been written about him by Schindler is a lie. Wow. It's all been made up. It's all phony. And Hollywood and everybody else doesn't even care. It's another they thing just you want can to relate make... to. Yes. They, uh, Schindler, do you know that? Do you know that, that everything that Schindler wrote about him is a lie? Yeah. Yeah. So... How do we find the real Beethoven? It, it's really it, it took me it took me twenty years to actually discover him, and he is as sweet and as childlike and as wonderful as they said Mozart was. You know, I guess that's inherent in, in these kind of divine composers. You know. Yep, and and uh, for lack of a better term, he's kind of a victim of Hollywood too. That's yes, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, and, yeah, and my, my crazy feeling was is that we've got to take him back. He's got to belong to us and not to the elite where they spend $300 for a ticket and we can't go. You know, how, um, how do you see that happening, Phil, with, um, with the, the common man taking possession of something as, as organic and, and awesome, but idolized, you know, for lack of a better term, um, idolized. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I met, I met a, a director, Hollywood director who actually went through the same experiences that I did with Beethoven. Wow. He, I, uh, yeah, he's written a book about him and he's touring all over the world because he's made a film about him. Uh, that is really true. Are you aware that that every year at Christmas time that they do uh, the Ninth Symphony in Japan, twenty five million people are performing 
the Ninth Symphony. It's called Daiksha, uh, or something like that. Uh, people study all year long to do the Ninth Symphony, and it's sort of, they don't celebrate Christmas in Japan. They celebrate the Ninth Symphony. Um, do you know that the prisoners in Allende's uh, jails, the torture centers, the women, when their husbands and their children were taken into the torture centers, these great big you know, palaces of torture, the women, the wives, and the mothers would play Beethoven on their boombox speakers so that their husbands and children could hear this music uh, in the prison. They weren't allowed in the prison. They all gathered outside the prison and played the same music at the same time, loud enough so that they knew that their husbands and children could hear the music and it would save their souls. That's amazing. Um, and he's written this book on it. And he told me, really briefly, uh, he was about to commit suicide. Uh, he was at the beach, Malibu, and his life was going so bad uh, that he really was comprehending suicide. And he turned on the radio at no particular station at that moment just to hear music before he decided to kill himself. And it was a Beethoven piece, and he didn't even know who it was. But he said that it touched, it reached into his heart and soul and said, life is worth living. And he then called the radio station to find out who it was, and they said it was Beethoven. And he felt he was obligated to Beethoven from that moment for saving his life. And he spent the last 10 years now uh, doing uh, talks all over the world, and he's got a, a documentary out on it. So there's something amazing about Beethoven that we haven't even scratched the surface on. That's astounding. That's absolutely astounding. And so uh, Beethoven chooses a... Uh uh, a pop, uh, a pop writer, to um, uh, to bring it back to the people. I'm one of many. I hope because uh, are you familiar with the story of Richard Dreyfus, the great actor? Yeah. When I, when I was in the when I was in the compulsion of Beethoven, trying to tell wake up people to listen to Beethoven, you know, uh, and they all just hung up on me. They're you're crazy, you know. Uh, I was watching Oprah one day, and, and uh, Richard Dreyfus was on. And Richard Dreyfus had been arrested f and uh, for cocaine use, and he had been in an accident, nearly got killed. This was his life was falling apart, completely falling apart. Right. And he was on the Oprah show, and Oprah was saying to me, "So, Richard, how did you get your life back together again?" And he said, "One word, Beethoven." And she goes, "Beethoven." He goes, yeah. He says, I was introduced to Beethoven. Also, the only time life... in his career Richard Dreyfus has ever given a one-word answer. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine so. Uh, but he went on to say how it changed his life. Uh, he listens to Beethoven in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. And he said he's calm and happy and collected, and he feels like he's in touch with the beauty of the universe. So, you know, what a gift we've been given, and, you know... Uh, it's not that, you know, I'm anti anyone else. It's just that, uh, you know, we, we've got this, uh, this incredible music that, uh, has been hijacked. Um, I mean, he, he, Richard Dreyfuss is in his, you know, late fifties and he's just picking up on Beethoven right. and it, it transformed him. I'm picking up on Beethoven and it, it saves my life and transforms me. So basically what I'm telling to listeners is, you know, if you find anything worthwhile in this album whatsoever, then go, go try and listen to Beethoven. 
That's all. There you go. You do exactly what I'm about to do, which is head over to Amazon or to foothillrecords.com and, and download this album right away. Um, the, the transformation and the, the journey to get where you are right now is chronicled in What's Exactly the Matter with Me? Uh, memoirs of a life in music and it's a fascinating book absolutely great thanks by the way for the um, uh, for the addendum at the end where you go through the compositions which was a, a treat for me um, you know where you, you walk through the the uh, walk through the P.F. Sloan compositions which is uh, I just I obviously I love getting what's uh, going into what's underneath the grooves so it's it's fantastic a great book i'm looking forward to the album phil anything else you want to uh, let the world know um no matter where you are in life right now whether it be good or bad it's it's going to change and the changes while you're going through them is hard to believe it's always for the better you can just hold on to whatever love you have for yourself and see that in everyone else, and everything will be all right. There isn't a better place to end this. Thanks very much, Phil. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.